Boo! <laughs> Happy Halloween, everybody, and welcome to another Tapehead Spooktacular. I am Sean. And I'm Lindsay. This is the podcast where we watch a VHS tape from either my spooky collection or Lindsay's spooky collection, and we uh, have a spooky discussion about it. Oh, so spooky. Yeah. In the closet. This has been a bit of a coincidence because we we both got to pick a Halloween episode. Pretty much the only criteria was that it it involves uh, scary things. And we both independently of each other picked children's witch movies from 1993. Yes, which is great because now we get to compare them. What are we doing today? Today we are reviewing Hocus Pocus. And before we begin, we have a couple extra Mary-Kate and Ashley uh, tidbits to share with you guys because we know that you just couldn't get enough of it. Yes, we do. So one of the things we wanted to talk about that we forgot last time was that we went to a San Francisco Giants game and just so happened to be there while they were recording Fuller House. Yeah, there was, uh, during the seventh inning stretch... There was this scene where one of the Tanner sisters... I don't remember the show as well as you yeah. do. Danny Tanner and Stephanie Tanner were there. The twins were not. Yeah, I'm not even sure if the twins are going to be in this new they, Netflix It doesn't reboot. look like it. I don't know why they would really want to. Yeah, and how would that even work since they were playing the same character and now they look much more different now since they're older? Yeah. But essentially, we got instructions from the, uh, what is it, the, the announcer? Yeah, this is at AT&T Park. Yeah, so we had, there, over the loudspeaker, they told they prompted us to boo and cheer. That was our audience participation. And apparently, this is a little Fuller House spoiler alert, I guess. Which sister was it that was doing the national anthem and was booed? Stephanie Tanner. Stephanie Tanner apparently has some sort of thing for Hunter Pent in this <laughs> gritty reboot of the show. I think they were just trying to please the Giants fans that were present. I don't know. I'm going to bet you that when that show debuted... I mean, it's set in San Francisco. Yeah. Maybe Hunter Pence filmed a cameo for the show. I mean, he was injured all season. We saw Danny Tanner get to kiss somebody. Yeah, there's a whole kiss cam thing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's very cute. Another interesting story. Maddeningly, after we had recorded the episode, I happen to remember this secondhand story of uh, a Mary-Kate and Ashley Olsen encounter. Uh, some family friends of mine, who are about my age growing up, they went on a Mary-Kate and Ashley cruise. Do you remember this, that they offered cruises? Oh yeah, I remember seeing ads for them. I'm not kind a- of advertising. <laughs> I'm not exactly sure how old the twins were when this particular story happened, but... I think it was around their passport to Paris days. Around their passport to Paris days. My friends, uh, they're, they're sisters, and for some reason they were on the Mary-Kate and Ashley cruise. Maybe they were just big fans, but during this cruise... Apparently, a cake was smashed against the cabin door of Mary-Kate and Ashley. And my friends were blamed for this. (laughs) Now, they swear to this day that they had nothing to do with it, that they were falsely accused. But it is kind of odd that, uh... Did they know anything about it? Like, why did they get accused of this? Like, why did... How did that happen? Well, look, they'll solve any crime by dinner time. And they, you know, on this cruise ship, they probably took some fingerprint samplings from the cake and deduced 
that it was my friends that did it. Um, but they, to this day, they swear that they didn't. So I don't, I don't exactly remember what came of that. If they were kicked off the ship, if they were forced to walk the plank, I don't know. Kind <laughs> of in... feel like they just got a slap on the wrist. I don't know. They were in uh, international waters, so they were also paying customers. That's true. That's true. When you're on the high seas with Mary-Kate and Ashley, anything goes. So we should talk trailers first. This is a Disney movie, but it was a little disappointing. There are only two ads. I'm catching up to you. No, catching not yet. Catching up to you. Not yet. But they recycled. Well, not necessarily recycled, but they were pushing first Snow White, the re-release of Snow White. Which we've seen before. And Mighty Ducks 2. Which we've also seen before. This is the first time that we had repeats of ads. These were both on the Three Musketeers tape, which is also 93. We've watched a lot of movies from 1993 (laughs) on this podcast. That was a goldmine. At least for us. Is it something about our ages? I don't know. They're, they're Born just... in the late the late eighties. I swear that half the movies we talk about on this show are from nineteen ninety three. But uh, yeah, if you want our riveting coverage of those trailers, you can go to the Three Musketeers episode. But really, it's just Snow White is Snow White and Mighty Ducks too. It's a lot of them hitting each other on ice and looking to Emilio Estevez for inspiration. You know, it did get me thinking that the D2 ad, you don't see a lot of children's sports movies. I know I'm always railing against <laughs> what kind of movies children should be watching, but I feel like we had so many growing up. Oh, um, absolutely. I love sports Is it just that movies. kids don't play sports anymore? Like, why is that? not because th- we had the sandlot the big green little giants uh rookie of the year Airbud. air bud <laughs> <laughs> oh i guess i'll give you that it, it, there are kids playing sports in that but it seems like sort of a lost genre i honestly can't think of the last can you think of one within the last year or two that came out i think this is another issue of i just don't watch children's movies anymore though so yeah. i can't really say if they exist or not <sighs> We're so out of touch. We're really out of touch. We've gotten we, so old. We gotta listen to to some One Direction, and we gotta. Uh... One Direction doesn't even a thing anymore. <laughs> they split up, didn't they? I think. I feel like all I know is that one of them is named Harry Styles. He might have some connection to Taylor Swift, and he's doing a solo career. The damn kids with their Taylor Swift and their hula hoops and they're not having sports movies. It could just be that kids don't go outside anymore. I'm Um, imagining today's kids' sports movie would be... Like, kids playing an MMORPG, <laughs> and yeah. it gets really intense, and they end up having to meet up in real in real life. There, there was, um, what was it, The Wizard? Do you know what I'm talking about? The Wizard? There was a video game. Was it a feature film? It was a feature film. It was about, it was like the Nintendo Power Glove. You know, I don't know enough about this to really be talking about it. <laughs> but I really feel like we're destined to get some sort of kids movie where... It's like the Karate Kid, but with video games, basically. Yeah. Now I'm just flashing back to, like, the surfing movies. That was definitely a thing. Well, Surf Ninjas. <laughs> yeah. But tell us about Hocus Pocus. Why did you pick this spooky, spooky movie? This is actually one of the few childhood favorites that I've watched as an adult. I watched it a couple years ago. I was introducing a friend of mine in college to it who had never seen it before. 
It's one of those movies that you grow up with, and if you ever meet someone who didn't see it, it's like, you didn't see, blah, 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 you didn't see, you know. And then you force them bodily to sit down and watch it. It's it's something that I just really loved as a kid. It was, it's very visual. A lot of the the costuming and the sets and the characters really stick in your head. It's uh, definitely an old favorite. And like a lot of the movies on this podcast, when it first was released, it was a critical and commercial failure. Which was really surprising. I did not realize that until we were looking into the background of the film. I had always assumed it was a success. Oddly released in July of 1993. Why? Why it's, I mean, it's the perfect Halloween movie. The New England autumnal setting. The fact that it takes place on Halloween. I mean, that's why it's every year it's shown all throughout the month of October on cable TV. And you have to wonder if there was some reason they didn't want to compete with other movies coming out later like they they didn't think they could compete with different horror movies that might have been coming out it's an odd release time or maybe they just want it in theaters really like a long time before halloween to try and get in viewership and tickets before the halloween burnout happened after october the only thing that i could think of is maybe they wanted to kind of double down on it and have it as a summer movie And then a few months later, when it comes out on VHS, it's just in time for Halloween. Because that would have been like three months later. Did movies come out that fast on VHS? It was was about a three-month turnaround, usually. Oh. That makes Um, sense, then. Yeah, because it was exactly three months before Halloween. What I didn't realize was just how much critics of the time just savaged this movie. They panned it. It was bad. We were reading reviews earlier, and they were talking about it being dreadful. It was inconsistent and hard to follow. The tone was wrong. The characters were cookie cutter. Which is so odd to me because I feel like as a critic, your job is to judge a film against other films of its type. You can't just Mm -hmm. judge a movie against every other movie or else you'd be comparing everything to... Lawrence of Arabia, well, and that makes no sense. And one of the odd ones was the ones that one of the ones that struck me as odd was ultimately the critics were complaining, "Oh, this is too scary. It starts with a death." And then there were others that were saying, "No, this is this didn't stay gritty, so it wasn't frightening enough." But it's a family film. Yeah, I, I it's just so odd to me because taking it as a a Disney kids Halloween movie it does its job really well Mm -hmm. and I I was really struggling to come up with real criticisms for it as we were watching it Mm -hmm. not only that but it corrects on the only two problems of Devil Devil Toil and Trouble (laughs) it is clearly an autumnal setting they shot this mostly in Massachusetts that nice beautiful orange foliage oh yeah that's what that's what I was missing in the uh, Canadian summer of Devil Devil Toil and Trouble and also it has a girl wearing a witch hat in this case (laughs) Thora Birch another major difference is that they had child actors who were very good at acting they actually did very well the child actors were great across the board. I guess the main ones were Max, who is played by Omri Katz of mm-hmm. Erie, Indiana. So the modern-day older brother. And Danny, who is played by a young Thora Birch, who later went on to American Beauty and Ghost World. And she's great in this, too. And she's such a cutie. She's the one that's dressed up as a witch, if you all remember, wearing her red lipstick, because she's just, nobody can contain this girl. And thank God they got that casting right, because if we were stuck with, like, unlikable kids, we'd be rooting for the witches to just, like, (laughs) murder them the entire time. But that's not the case. 
So this movie starts with this kind of establishing the Sanderson sisters, these three evil witches that want to stay young and beautiful. I don't know how beautiful they can be other than Sarah Jessica Parker, but, you know, beside the <laughs> point. And so they're abducting children and sucking the life out of them to stay young. They end up being hung by the townsfolk in Salem. And the movie then kind of moves into the modern day where these kids accidentally bring them back to life and end up having to fight them off and protect themselves from having their lives sucked out of them. Right before the witches were hung, they used this this magic eyeball book that they had to... Um, what was it? It was the Black Flame Candle. If yeah. It was lit by a virgin Yes. on Halloween. I didn't understand what a virgin was at this time. I think it was explained <laughs> to me as, oh, you haven't been kissed yet. I think that's oh, how really? it was. Yeah, I think that's oh, how it was explained so to me. That's so cute. That's it, so cute. But it was very. There are uh, no virgins on the planet if it's just being kissed. Yeah, I think that ended up getting me into trouble, though. <laughs> <laughs> did you just like? Did you say like you're not a virgin to someone, or did you accuse uh, I think them of that taking I, your virginity? I think that I think that seven-year-old Sean at one point said that he wasn't a virgin because he had <laughs> kissed a girl before. Oh my God, that's so cute. Uh, not really. <laughs> I just like to imagine a seven-year-old boy declaring that he's not a virgin. <laughs> but yeah, so essentially, bef- just before they die, they curse this candle. They they kind of have a perfect premise. Everything in their home, the Sanderson sister witch home, is preserved because it's turned into a museum. Yeah, which is a great touch because Salem is best known for the witch trials. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we were talking about this. It's so funny that Salem has come to be this, oh, it's a spooky Halloween town. What happened there was a tragedy. I mean, it was innocent women that were murdered for no reason other than really misguided religious fanatics. And possibly bread malt, I I believe, was one of the the probable causes. Yeah, I've heard that as, as well. But it's just so funny how Salem has come to be like, oh, that would be the perfect spooky setting for this. But for better or worse, it's set in Salem. Salem, 1993. So these witches return and are kind of fish out of water. And that's where a lot of the laughs come from. The thing that's... This this is, I guess, what I'll go with one of the critics on that kind of was jarring on this watch of the movie was I realized, and I'd always just taken this for granted and gone with it, but I realized these, these women have been dead for 300 years. They jump into the modern day and they're confused by different things. But Bette Midler's character, Winifred, knows how to jump into modern song and dance like nothing. Yeah. And they make other jokes, too, that were that are very contemporary. I mean, Bette Midler's rapping at one point. <laughs> I mean, she's... And this is one of those movies that has one of those great parties that only happens in movies where all the grown-ups have gone to the grown-up Halloween party at City Hall. I've never heard of this actually happening. Is it because we don't count as grown-ups yet? Have we just not made it to that point in our lives <laughs> well I it's well, just you know, still hidden from us by grown-ups i mean parents like you know it's that's an, what i mean like I, I feel like you were talking about 40 somethings it's a device to get the parents out of the way so spooky scary things can happen mm-hmm. and they can all be condensed into one area to not believe whatever it is that's happening but my point is is that winnie the bet midler witch is able to just walk in and is instantly 
the life of the party without question. Oh, and I love too because it's one of those things where Halloween works perfectly for them because they don't stick out like sore thumbs. You can't tell they're three hundred years old and odd garb and makeup because it's Halloween. They just blend. So I guess most of this movie is really just the witches wandering around 20th century Salem, confused by the trick-or-treaters, confused by buses and roads, Mm -hmm. and trying to get that damn book back, that spell book. I like the book because we don't really get any explanation of other than that Bette Midler needs it to do her spells and potions because it's got all of the answers in it. And I like that it's her book, not the sisters. Can we talk about the sisters for a yeah, second? Yeah, you know, on this watch of it, I really noticed that there is a <laughs> quite the dichotomy <laughs> between Bette Midler and the other witches. They really consciously made the two sisters. Sarah Jessica Parker's like the stupid slutty one. Not no, I shouldn't say the seductress. That way. Should Sarah say. Jessica Parker's the stupid but pretty one, and then uh, you have Kathy and Jenny, who's just kind of the stupid one. Well, I really who makes real... dog barking noises. The dog barking thing is a curly thing. They're totally the Three Stooges. So I didn't get that. I don't know how <laughs> I never realized this, but it dawned on me on this watch. Bette Midler is Mo. Yeah, I can see that. Sarah Jessica Parker is Larry, and Kathy and Jimmy is Curly, and it makes total sense if you look at it in that light. But they made the the two sisters that aren't Midler real dum dums, and so I think it. I think it's partly to make Bette Midler the boss, and so she's kind of in charge, and it creates a threat. You have three witches, but the two kind of hold her back, so she's not as much of a threat. And you can believe that these kids can actually fight them off. I think it softens them up a little bit. And this was a criticism that the critics had, was that they weren't like a believable threat, which meant that there were no stakes throughout the movie. But I feel like Bette Midler has her moments where she's Mm -hmm. really intense and... You know, you believe. I mean, you believe her as a physical threat. Yeah, absolutely. Just Especially... enough that, it, like, it's it's a, just enough so the stakes are there. But most of the time, they're just having fun. And yeah, I think it's hard too because this is sort of a horror comedy. It's a children's horror comedy, especially. So it's they have to pull punches, but they also balance it with a lot of humor and a lot of jokes, so that. The threat is there, but it's the movie isn't about the threat. It's more about kind of how everything plays out. We forgot to mention a, a key player in all of this, a certain Binks the Cat. Ah, yeah. Who, Thackeray Binks, that's so hard. I always feel like I'm saying Zachary with a lisp when I say that name. But Thackeray Binks is the older brother. There's a whole, like, brother-sister thing in both the 17th century and 20th century parts of the movie. Yeah, and they kind of hide the parallel with um, how they have the two modern siblings interacting at the beginning of the film. Yeah, because the the olden times, <laughs> they, they clearly love each other, this brother and sister, whereas Max and Danny are more on the rocks when we meet them, and uh-huh. Max is kind of being dickish because he's had to move from Hollywood to uh, to Salem. <laughs> and we know he's from California because he's got a tie-dye shirt. Oh, yeah. Just like all of us do out here. And he's just so cool. He hands his numbers out to all the girls. 
for some reason, he's I digits. I should yeah. say he's a cool Californian boy. I forgot that they explicitly say he's from Los Angeles. I always just thought that they they're making fun of him because he's from California and never really specify where he's from. Wouldn't it be funny if he's from Visalia or just like some some place no one's heard of? Yeah, or just from like a really tiny Northern Californian town that's almost exactly like Salem. But he's definitely from L.A. So part of the original curse Mm -hmm. is that Thackeray is turned into a black cat, a black talking cat, and he is doomed to live forever. But there's an interesting thing about this because it's actually played by two actors. Yeah. So Jason Marsden voices the cat for most of the movie and dubs over the young actor who plays Thackeray in the uh, sort of prologue to the movie, which is really interesting. It must suck for that young actor to be dubbed over like that. But It's odd for him to be dubbed over, and I kind of feel bad for Jason Marsden that he didn't just get the role himself, even though he is the character. I mean, he gives him his voice. I remember thinking that boy has such a cute voice when I was a kid. You also said that the bo- the live action boy you thought was really cute oh, as a yeah. kid. Oh, yeah. And Jason Marsden was kind of... Had that sort of nerdy look, so I think that Why they wanted. They um, wanted for their... the listeners, if you can picture, if, if you've seen Boy Meets World, Jason Marsden plays the sort of sidekick of the oldest brother. I think that they kind of wanted to have their cake and eat it too with the two people playing Binks because mm-hmm. they wanted the voice talent of Jason Marsden. That's a good choice, but then they also wanted this kind of pretty boy to play him. Yeah, because you know, for all the Lindsays out there. <laughs> I remember watching it when I was a kid, and I was sad that the cat was replaced with this guy who I had no emotional attachment to. Aww. Like, I liked him way better when he was a cat. He was a pretty cool cat. Um, they also had some impressive graphics with making animating the cat making him look like he's actually talking. This was really groundbreaking to have the cat's lips move, um, because the Homeward Bound movies and things like that, probably for the best, didn't have the uh, animal's lips move because their owners were not supposed to hear them Mm -hmm. which is i think i think it's so weird that that's just standard issue now with uh talking animal movies today so does that mean that the owners just see that the their animals like lips moving at all time it makes more sense if they can just sort of hear each other's thoughts well because i'm thinking of like garfield when you look at the comics he's speaking in thought bubbles yeah no, there's something interesting about the cat and his speech, too, because you see him in the past trying to talk to his parents in his cat form, and they don't seem to hear him. And as the movie transpires, he only is able to communicate with a zombie, three witches, and children. So I'm kind of wondering if there's some distinction. Is he not able to communicate with regular adults? Yeah, because there's supposed to be this crushing part at the beginning where he can't talk to his dad. His dad is like, get away, you beast! Because I guess black cats are bad luck. But if he could talk from the beginning, why doesn't he just say, hey, dad, it's me? Yeah. So we kind of talked about Banks, and so he's cursed to become a cat after failing to save his sister's life. So he's tortured. He's just been a cat for 300 years. They transition to the present, where you see Max and Danny, kind of parallel siblings. They're about the, they have about the same age difference. You know, a sort of similar look to the kids from 300 years ago. But you see, they're fighting. They do not get along. Early on in the film, one of the things that Danny taunts Max with is uh, (laughs) she's hiding in his closet in full witch regalia. And 
she hears Max fantasizing about Allison, played by Vanessa Shaw, who's kind of the uh, the hottie at the school, who's kind of dodging his advances. I mean, he did very straightforwardly in his Californian way hand her his digits right after his class in, in front of everybody. <laughs> in front of the whole class, which even as a kid, I was like, whoa. No teenager does that. No high school boy does that. I guess he's just such a cocky Californian. He, he... he is the bravest virgin ever. Yeah. And, th- and then she totally burns him later when she hands him back his number. Aww, poor guy. Well, it's interesting that Allison remains likable, even doing things like that. And you can kind of accept that Max is just kind of a dick. And you... And kind of awkward and... Yeah. I mean, he's a high school boy. Yeah. But I think that Allison has played really well. I think that it's kind of a thankless part because she's just kind of there to be the pretty girl Mm -hmm. who knows all about the Sanderson sisters. And her character's not overly developed over the course of the movie. All that we really know is that she's the rich, popular girl, and she lives in this huge estate, which is throwing, like, a uh, full-on costume party, like a costume ball. We're talking historical. These guys are in white powdered wigs. It it looked like something out of Interview with a Vampire to me. Personally. Yeah, no, it reminded me a lot of Interview with a Vampire. And uh, I don't think that's what they were going. There for. was a whole side movie that we missed out on where that was a whole vampire party, but uh, we only got the witch side of the night this year. There's also a couple real assholes named Ice and Jay, oh, God. who are the bullies of the town. Who I feel like they're the kind of bullies that only exist in movies. We're just all the time, around the clock, they're just awful. To children, to everyone, just stealing candy and smashing pumpkins. Like, yeah. they're, they're everything you could do wrong, they're doing wrong. To the extent that, at the end of the film, Max pretty much leaves them alone to die. He really <laughs> wants them to die. Like, he has an opportunity to save them, and he leaves them knowing that the witches could suck out their souls. I mean, granted, he was really on a time crunch there, but he just took his sneakers back, which Ice had stolen earlier. And ran off. Which, as a kid, I was like, yeah, take that, Ice and Jay. But looking at it now, it's like, no, they're leaving them to be killed by the witches. And if the witches were to suck their souls, which I guess they could have. Mm -hmm. Because it wasn't that what they were trying to get the whole time. was just They just needed a couple more souls to make it through the night. They could have just soul-sucked Ice and Jay and and left Max and Danny for another night. But they... And it they, gotten so personal for them. Yeah, they, it got vindictive. The two dumb sisters, which really it was kind of smart of them. They were thinking, let's just destroy Ice and Jay so we can live forever. But uh, Bette Midler, it got too personal. Yeah. And speaking of Bette Midler, one interesting aspect uh, between her and her sister, Sarah Jessica Parker, they shared, they had sort of this love triangle with this guy named Billy Butcherson. Yes. Who we meet as a zombie, played by Doug Jones, uh, who's a frequent collaborator of Guillermo del Toro. He's in things like Pan's Labyrinth. If there's ever a skinny, creepy, weird guy... Chances are Doug Jones plays him, and they resurrect Billy from the grave, and... Originally, they killed him, well, after sewing his mouth shut. So he couldn't tell the secrets that he had. But on this watch, he was a very funny character, because most of the time, he's chasing after them on orders from the witches. He doesn't intend to do the children any harm, he just can't communicate with them. 
And it's only until he, he's able to cut his mouth open and moths fly out of it, which is awesome, that he finally calls Bette Midler a hag and all this stuff. It's only then that he decides to become good. Mm-hmm. And even after that, you know, it's just so funny because they thank Billy at the end of the movie when he returns to his grave. Billy contributes nothing to this. He is a burden the whole time. It's also weird because I remember him being more involved in the movie and having more lines. In my memory, he had a much larger presence. Danny is completely safe in the end of the movie. She's in a grave surrounded by salt. She could have just waited this thing out. But no, uh, dumb Billy got his head cut off and he's ambling around trying to find it and Danny, being the sweet, sweet good witch that she is, tries to help him find it. And so, basically, Billy's still kind of working for the bad guys even at the end because he's... Unintentionally. Unintentionally, yes. But if it wasn't for Danny helping him find his head, the movie would have uh, ended a lot earlier. Mm-hmm. On kind of a sad note, I mean, this is another parallel between uh, Double Double Toil and Trouble, is that we do have a uh, deceased cast member. Mr. N and the Gravedigger from the previous film have, have since passed, but Charles Rocket plays the dad. It just reminds me how good he was in things like this. Speaking of Double Double Toil and Trouble, since we've kind of covered the main cast of this entire film, one thing that Double Double Toil and Trouble did do was they had diversity in their cast, whereas everyone in this movie is white. <laughs> now you're on Double Double Toil and Trouble's side. Not so I much. I told you that movie wasn't racist. No, I feel like <laughs> it is racist. Um, they also kind of, you know make fun of a little person they force him to drive a car like a clown car get off its case but essentially what what i'm saying what would you rather have would you rather have a movie that completely misuses minorities or would you have one that completely neglects them i think that's kind of the interesting thing because both movies came out in the same year and one has failed diversity and the other one doesn't even attempt it so i don't really know where to go with that but i just kind of want to make that note I think Binks is as close as you get to diversity since he's a black cat. He is a talking cat. You know, one of the things that I also remember about this movie growing up was just how enchanted I was with Sarah Jessica Parker. Oh, jeez. And she looks amazing in this. And I feel like it's so odd to me because people are always down on Sarah Jessica Parker's looks. They're always picking her apart. It's very catty. I don't quite understand it. But I never really saw much of uh, Sex and the City. But in this, she's pretty smoking hot. The witch look definitely suits her. This is her at her best. And it's funny because her makeup is very 90s. Like, she's supposed to be right out of 1693. But she's rocking the dark lips and some major, major... Uh, eyebrow makeup. Well, she's planning ahead. You know, she figures she's going to come out in 1993. I do like that the film managed to push in two different songs, one for SJP and the other for Bette Midler. I think that that's one of the iconic moments of the movie is when she does I Put a Spell on You. She does a whole, like, remix of it after having just heard the skeleton band play it once, which I always thought was funny. She picks up quickly, that Winnie. So, Sean, I know you're a huge fan of this movie. Can you come up with any personal criticism? So anything that you noticed yourself that bothered you a little bit? Well, I mean, I don't know if I'm a huge fan of this movie. It is one of those ones that I like to see once a year at Halloween. I I guess that if I have a criticism of it, it's more just that 
a lot of the movie is spent on sort of fish out of water gags where mm-hmm. the witches are just kind of meandering around from house to house. They have this whole aside with a bus driver that's kind of weird. Which... They go to Gary Marshall's house, <laughs> and I like that Gary Marshall, his theme for this year is just hill. <laughs> his whole house is just... I think that that's something that that critics of the time pointed out, was like, what's all this with Gary Marshall playing <laughs> Satan and all this? There's a lot of these asides that don't really advance the story forward, but... Because I grew up with this movie, I kind of just take all that for granted, and I really yeah. like those scenes. So, I don't know, it really is just, I think this movie just got to me too early. It's hard mm-hmm. for me to really pick out flaws. I think Kenny Ortega, the director, did a great job with it. It really has a great look to it. I mean, a big problem with Double Double yeah. Toil and Trouble was that it didn't have that kind of fall look to it. And this has it in spades. Like, it has just everything mm-hmm. that you would associate uh, Halloween with is here. You know, there's... It just the aesthetic of it and the atmosphere is all there. Second to really only trick or treat in that department <laughs> for me in terms of just the sheer Halloween atmosphere. One thing that I think is interesting to note, you mentioned Kenny Ortega. He was also the director later on, much later on, of High School Musical. Which I didn't know, and I've never seen any of those films, but I guess good yeah. for him because they were a pop culture sensation for a few minutes. Oh, yeah. Those were made exclusively for the Disney Channel. They were made for TV, and this film, Hocus Pocus, was originally intended for TV. Yeah, which would have just made it more similar to Double Double Toil and Trouble because he would have had two direct-to-TV witch children's movies in 1993. Yeah, and you kind of wonder, like, are those odd asides a marker of its original TV intention? It was going to be on the in TV format, and that they're going to have commercial breaks. It's possible. It's very episodic in a lot of ways. I think that it definitely benefits from a big budget. It was they had a very big budget. Yeah, I mean. It was just under $30 million, um, which is a huge budget for this time. It's just funny because Double Double Toil and Trouble is probably like 10% of that. But I associate <laughs> these two movies so strongly with each other. And it's interesting that they t- they were willing to take a chance on this and say, hey, this, this should be a big budget theatrical release, and then release it in July. Like, I can't get over that. I mean, yeah, it turned out fine. This movie has a yeah. great cult following, but... It could have been such a smash in the Halloween of 93. I don't know why. I mean, maybe it, it's just that they didn't want to compete with other things. Maybe they wanted to kind of double mm-hmm. dip and get the VHS sales. It's I don't know what really it is. really out-of-season release. And that was one of the things that critics of the time, we found articles where they explicitly said, why did this film get released in the summer? It does not feel like a summer film. And, that- and I feel like wrongly that's where a lot of the heat for this movie came from Mm -hmm. which is such a dumb thing to say you should you should judge a movie on its merits alone you shouldn't judge it on what time of year it came out in i mean i feel like a movie a lot of movies that come out in january are kind of judged really harshly because they come out in january because that's famously like a dumping ground for movies they didn't want to release during the competitive december season they kind of just want to get off their books how would you feel and how would you receive a christmas movie released in october that you know you got me i would hate it i yeah, would you know that's what i think right yeah it's disrupting the flow. I hate the Christmas creep. As, as much as that sounds like a monster, the Christmas creep refers to the fact that we now have Christmas decorations for sale as early as September. 
and that drives me nuts. And yeah, you're right. If a Christmas movie came out in October, and there actually was one, there was Surviving Christmas with Ben Affleck, and that got destroyed by critics. Really? Yeah, that that might be one of those that has like a single digit tomato meter. And I feel like it's something that they could have easily dealt with by releasing it later. It just doesn't make sense. And so if you're releasing something in the wrong time frame, in the wrong season, it won't be received well. The audience won't want to go pay money to go see it in the theaters because they're it's hot outside and it doesn't feel like autumn and it doesn't feel like they're going to go trick-or-treating soon. The excitement's not there yet. Well, you know what else was in 1993 was Nightmare Before Christmas. Was there enough room on their slate? Like, did they just sort of want to space out these movies? I would really yeah. be curious to know why they did that. But I feel like this is, a, this is a movie like The Princess Bride that was saved by VHS release. Oh, yeah. Well, and Tremors. Um, yeah, that's I, true. I think that a lot of these movies just had this wonderful afterlife on home video and especially cable TV. I mean, I feel like this is just constantly, just every year, not just the Disney Channel, but all over the place, Mm -hmm. um, you can find Hocus Pocus. They um, show Hocus Pocus every year on the Disney Channel and on ABC. And which might actually speak to its kind of quality as a TV movie. I mean, since that's what it was originally conceived as. Good point. Another person involved with this is both a writer and producer was Mick Garris, who's kind of known in horror circles for things like Masters of Horror, which was that uh, show that had all the different horror directors doing episodes. And I wonder if he had originally intended it to be a TV um, Mm -hmm. production. It makes a lot of sense to me that it plays so strongly on TV and that it does sort of have that feel. Mm -hmm. I mean, just like Double Double Toil and Trouble, it sort of has that false ending about two-thirds of the way through. In Double Double Toil and Trouble, it's when they think that she's stuck in the mirror forever, but but uh, they've set the clock back five minutes. In this, they think that they've killed the witches by putting them in a kiln, which is just oh, awful. Their high school has a giant walk-in kiln that yeah. you can just access at any time, which is kind of horrifying. And they, they completely, they're so casual and happy about it. They throw them in there, burn them alive, essentially, at least they believe so, and they're walking away just, like, so pleased with themselves. You I know? cannot think of a worse way to die than in a kiln with my family. Yeah. You know, like, to, to burn alive in a, in a kiln with your two sisters. These sisters don't really care for each other. Case in point, you did uh, mention while we were watching that Bette Midler is kind of derisive of how Max sacrifices himself for his sister Danny. Pretty much after Max drinks the potion, which makes you all ghosty, which then you can be sucked up by the witches in the mythology of this movie. And after he does that, it's a very noble gesture. She says something along the lines of, what a fool to sacrifice oneself for thy sister, which is like, which kind of shows you just how far she's willing to go. She'd throw both of her dummy sisters under the bus, uh, drop of a witch hat. Yeah, there is no actual um, love there for those witch sisters. I think it's kind of the Mo thing. It's the tough love. Moe's always beating up on his brothers. Oh, yeah. You know, another interesting thing, speaking of the sisters, Rosie O'Donnell was approached for Kathy and Jimmy's part. Which would have been awful. Let's, I don't let's agree see, on this. I just do not see her playing well with Bette Midler. 
And you know who almost played Max was Leonardo DiCaprio. Who declined the role for well, what, What's Eating Gilbert Grape. Which was smart because he got his first Oscar nomination for that. But again, like, I love Leonardo DiCaprio, but I don't know if... I mean, this would have been, I guess, Growing Pains age Leo. Early teens. Or Critters 3 Leo. <laughs> I don't know if that would work as well. I feel like he's a little too pretty for this role. Like, I feel like Max is kind of like the every kid you know yeah and i think that's one of the things that makes this film successful is that you look at max and he's not perfect as a as a person but he's kind of flawed and relatable i think that omri katz his performance is kind of what holds the whole thing together just because he's likable he's definitely kind of a punk treats his sister kind of like crap but he's likable throughout it and he definitely has an arc if mishandled, if the, I mean, it's it's kind of heavy lifting that he's doing. It's sort of, you know, all the attention goes to the witches, but he kind of has the hardest role in the film, and I think he does it really well. And he, ha- he has to be just cool enough that you respect him. That California dude. With his tie-dye. The... He even has tie-dye <laughs> over his wall, like yeah. a giant tie-dye sheet that he tacked to his wall. Yeah, next to his drum set. He has the coolest room. Can we talk about his room for a second? It's huge. He has a staircase in his own room that leads up to a lighthouse sort of looking attic. It's like an observation deck. For one thing, if your parents let you have a drum set in your room, you have nothing to complain about. Your life is fine. Did you notice there were a lot of clothes in the drum, I think, to kind of quiet it? I think that maybe they were either implying that or he's just really messy. All right, so what do you think, Lindsay? This is your spooky tape. Do you buy it? Do you rent it? Do you tape over it? I'm going to say buy it. I think it's really fun, and if you go into it thinking that this is a family-friendly Halloween movie, I think you can really enjoy it, especially if any, any fan of Disney films. Like, this is definitely in the vein of Disney films. Yeah, it's definitely a buy it for me, too. I think that it speaks volumes about the overall quality of this movie, that it's withstood not only flopping commercially, but also just being savaged by critics, that it's been able to emerge as just this perennial Halloween favorite. I think all the performances are very strong. The atmosphere, I think Kenny Ortega does a great job with this material. And yeah, it's it just really holds up. It's a, it's a lot of fun. Kind of the perfect children's Halloween movie, I'd say. I can't really... I mean, we've covered pretty much all yeah. uh, children's witch movies except for The Witches. Let's... And Teen Witch, I guess. Teen Witch totally counts, yeah. I mean, come on. To, to critics that savage this, like, come on. Just take a look at Teen Witch. Do you really think that this is the... Well, although you like Teen Witch. I did grow up watching Teen Witch. It was on late night Disney because it was slightly adult. And by adult, I mean teen. But to me, as a small child, I thought that was adult because... I thought the fifth graders looked really old. Top that. Top that. No, I'd like to pick a bone with some of the critics, too, who complained that this film was too dark because it starts with a death. I don't really think that's a good case to make. There are a lot of children's stories and books that are dark, too, and that deal with death, and I don't really think that's something that you need to avoid. And it sets them up as villains. I think that the death of Emily Binks kind of establishes these witches are for real. Yeah. And if you let them have their way, they're going to do this to, like, every kid on the planet for their own vanity. When it establishes a real threat, and it sets up the film for a really sweet ending and a kind of cathartic ending. 
You know, Sean, you said that you think there isn't much or any kids horror anymore, but Goosebumps came out this month. Yeah, and apparently it's good. Um, it looks I, really good. I'd be very curious to see it. It's number one at the box office for this weekend. I was a little skeptical when I saw some of the ads that they were pulling their punches a little bit, but apparently it's it's good, so we'll check back in on that later. Sean, you just can't give up hope. Maybe there will be a way to terrify children with new movies. You know, the children are our future, and uh, I really hope that they keep Halloween spooky. So this was my selection. What's your choice for us next time, Sean? Well, unfortunately, we'll be out of October. Uh, <laughs> I wish this month could go on forever and we could just do Halloween and horror tapes. Or tapes that have October in the title. But another holiday is upon us. The return of one Agent 007, Mr. Bond, James Bond. Spectre is coming out to theaters. I'm a big James Bond fan, and I wanted to revisit one of my very favorite James Bond films, and we'll be doing the 1989 License to Kill, starring my favorite Bond, Timothy Dalton. Which is an unusual choice, right? You know, I'm going to tell you all about it next episode. Dun-dun-dun. I'd like to thank Will Price, as always, for use of his song Mandatory Groove. You can find more of his music at soundcloud.com slash gargantulon. And you can find the spelling of gargantulon on our website, <laughs> tapeheadspodcast.com. You can also email us at tapeheadspodcast at gmail.com. And we'd love it if you went on to iTunes, gave us a review, gave us a rating. You can also find us on SoundCloud and through our website. That's it for Tape Heads. I've been Sean. And I've been Lindsay. Until next time. Do, 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 do.